This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. This week I had the pleasure of chatting with Katie, who's in New Zealand and she is my first New Zealand surrogate that I've had on the podcast. Her tale is quite epic, so I'm going to let her tell it. And uh, I think you'll find it quite interesting just how the different countries manage surrogacy arrangements, particularly when you've got intended parents in one country and a surrogate in another. I'm going to hand over now to Katie. So my name is Katie and I am Irish. I live in New Zealand on the West Coast and called Raglan. And I've just finished my surrogacy journey for my sister um, and her husband, uh, our little baby fly. And it's been quite a, a journey together into the world, but a wonderful one. Yeah, amazing. And what I was completely thrown by is that you're in New Zealand, but your sister and her partner are in Ireland and you carried for them. So they've actually had to travel to you for the pregnancy and the birth stuff. Tell me, how did it come to be that you're carrying for your sister? Sure. And yes, certainly the um, different countries definitely made it a much more complex situation. So um, my sister, Amy, had um, cancer, cervical cancer, uh, about 12 years ago now. So she was 25 and she had to have a hysterectomy at the time, but um, was really fortunate that they were able to keep her ovaries. And um, I guess when that happened, we were very focused on obviously her surviving and her um, well-being at the time, but it always kind of came up that maybe one of um, myself or my older sister would possibly be able to become a surrogate for her at some stage. Um, and I guess that kind of sat in the background with us for a long time until we all kind of got to that stage where we were having our own families. Um, and I know my oldest sister had thought and wanted to, and become a surrogate probably for her but she actually had really severe hyperemesis in her pregnancies so that was um, wiped off the cards and then I myself had a journey with endometriosis so I thought for a while that I wasn't going to be able to be a um, surrogate for Amy either so it was always kind of a complicated journey and then I got pregnant myself in 2015 and um, had my little son and it wasn't until I had him that I realized what herself and her husband were really going to miss out on Um, and it really kind of hit me I remember being in his room one night and looking at him and thinking wow it's so amazing that you can love something so much and thinking that I really wanted her to experience that so I spoke to my husband about it and um, without him none of this would have happened he's been so great and supportive to us all but he just sort of said look if that's what you want to do um i'll support you to do it and um, i don't know if you regret, regret saying that now but um <laughs> that was his feeling at the time and um, so we basically went back to ireland in 2015 then to get married myself and my husband and we sat down with amy and reggie and we said look this is what we we'd like to be able to offer you but we don't know how hard it'll be or if it's even possible and um, but we just want to start looking into it and um, so I guess then as a team of four we started trying to look into our options um, but it's really complicated in Ireland I mean what it's 2020 now and it was 2015 when we said we wanted to do it for them so it's just an idea of how long it's taken to get to this point um, in Ireland you can't get ethical approval to implant an embryo 
So although they will make your, create the embryo in Ireland, they won't implant it. And that's to do with the fact that the constitution in Ireland doesn't state what a birth mother actually is. So whether it's the person who gives birth to the baby or whether it's genetic mother, and um, that's really what it comes down to. So we looked into all our different options. We looked into if we were able to create embryos in Ireland, would we be able to transplant them um, in Ireland, first of all, in Northern Ireland, in the UK. And we were just kind of going through the list and ticking off all the places that we couldn't do it. Um, and then we contacted um, fertility clinic in New Zealand and they said, look, could be a possibility. And they gave me the name of a um, lawyer in Auckland and without her, um, this journey wouldn't have happened. She just really went out in the limb to make it work. And um, yeah, so that's... The this end. is going to be really useful for other teams that are looking at cross-border surrogacy in similar situations, particularly for New Zealand, where they have a surrogate in New Zealand, but the intended parents are actually here in Australia or vice versa. So that's really interesting that the New Zealand system was kind of able to accommodate you. Tell me about that. Was there a legal process that you then had to follow in New Zealand? Yeah, so it's pretty strict in New Zealand. Um, the um, Amy was able to make her embryos in Ireland, um, and that was quite a medically challenging um, process because she um, wasn't a typical kind of IVF patient. And um, so once that was done, um, we were actually able to fly the embryos into New Zealand. Um, and we thought we, only, we were only allowed to fly the embryos in once we had ethical approval. So in New Zealand, an ethics board sits, I think, every quarter um, that goes through. You know, you have to have done medical tests. You have to have done group counselling and um, counselling on your own um, and had legal advice and have some legal documents drawn up before you go to ethics and then they approve it or not. But um, there was a lot of background work to achieve that. And then when that was achieved, we were allowed to uh, have the embryo sent over. But I guess um, we had a few, <laughs> a couple of really strong women who um, really went out in the limb for us, as I said, our lawyer in Auckland and also our um, counsellor in the fertility clinic who just really worked to make it happen for us because they knew how hard it had been up to to that point to try and find somewhere to be able to do it. Yeah, amazing. Does the fact that Amy and her partner, they're not New Zealand citizens, did that make it more difficult for them? It would have, I guess that was one of the um, pros of a global pandemic was um, we thought that the visa situation was going to be a bit more complicated for them, that they'd only be allowed in the country for a maximum of three months and that kind of side of it. But um because of COVID, they ended up being allowed to stay here for six months. So that was uh, quite a bonus. Yeah. Um, in terms of the legalities of the actual process of surrogacy, it didn't matter that they weren't New Zealand citizens, no. But um, th the parental situation with their baby is very complicated. And um, even in New Zealand, it's quite a straightforward process here, as in 
once the baby's born um, myself and my husband are recognized as the parents but there is um, a straightforward enough adoption process to deal with that but if Amy and Reggie went through that adoption process in New Zealand it would be recognized in Ireland so there was no point us actually doing that so we are now in a situation where Blake and I are still recognized parents of baby Florence in New Zealand and um, Amy and the same in Ireland so Amy and Reggie are now back in Ireland and they have to or contest the um, birth certificate now and prove that Reggie is the genetic father. And with that, then he can um, take guardianship or parental care. And then Amy can apply to become a guardian. And then hopefully in a few years, she'll be able to adopt Florence. But it is all very complicated. And it's um, just a reflection on Irish law, I guess. Yeah, of course. Wow. So tell me about the pregnancy, because I understand that you were pregnant at the beginning or before COVID kind of hit. What was the impact of COVID and lockdowns in New Zealand? Um, yeah, so I was pregnant in the November um, and I was really lucky I was pregnant after the first transfer. So that was um, a great relief. Um, and I was extremely sick as well. So we had kind of planned it that if I got pregnant, my mum would come out for Christmas and support us. So um, that was great. She was able to come out and, and spend time with me over Christmas. And then my oldest sister was able to come out and spend a bit more time because I was very morning sick. So I really needed that. Um, and then Amy and Reggie were actually due to come over for our 20 week scan. And um, that was when um, COVID started to look a little bit more complicated. And um, so basically we got to a point where the New Zealand borders looked like they might close. So Amy and Reggie packed a bag and 24 hours later they were on a plane to New Zealand um, with some random baby stuff in the bag and um, not sure whether they were going to get home or not. Again, they left their dog with a friend um, and they came out and then um, they were had to isolate for a couple of weeks but then we did lockdown with them together in our house which was a bit like the big brother house but it worked and it was nice to have some extra hands to help with my kids and um, but then they were actually stuck here yeah if they had left the country they wouldn't have been able to get back in and they were just lucky they got in in time because New Zealand has been so strict with only letting in um, citizens and permanent residents that they wouldn't have been able to potentially come. So they were coming over just for a scan and stayed, what, six months? Six months in the end, yeah. Wow. So there's a big shift and change for everybody. And yeah. I, I'm yeah. hearing you on the Big Brother house. So how many people were in the house? <laughs> well, there was myself and my um, husband and our two kids and then Amy and Reggie. And we actually have um, our house split in two. We rent out upstairs. So there was two adults living upstairs as well. So it was quite um, cozy, but at least we had some people to keep us company. Wow. So we're saying that um, there's a cross-border surrogacy with uh, at least one country that doesn't really support surrogacy and then locked down in New Zealand in a household for six months that they've had to stay with you before they could eventually return home. Um, Okay, that's, yeah. I mean, that's quite unique. We could make a movie out of that story, really, couldn't we? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it really only gets better. It's, well, I mean, the whole journey has taken us so long and it's been, I think it could be a really good movie at this stage, you know? Yeah. So tell me about the pregnancy because I know you were sick in the beginning. What was it like then having Amy there um, for the later parts of the pregnancy? Um, so, yeah, I'm, the whole pregnancy process in terms of actually getting pregnant was 
as straightforward enough and I was able to do it in a natural cycle. Um, the first 14 weeks, I was really, really sick and um, just kind of in bed a lot and struggling to, to manage. And then I hit about, um, I hit about 14 weeks and um, my sort of mental health in terms of the pressure of the pregnancy and actually when people started to find out that I was pregnant and what I was doing, I, I really began to struggle. Um, I never realized that it would be something that I would find hard, but I actually found it hard when people were um, contacting me and congratulating me and saying that it was a great thing to do because I guess I was never really doing it for um, the attention factor or um, that side of it. And then the attention coupled with feeling so sick, um, I reached out to the fertility associates to my counsellor and um, she was just wonderful and she really pulled me out of a bit of a dark hole and um, she then set up where I spoke to her pretty much every week for the rest of the pregnancy and and so that was really really valuable and then when we threw in the complications of a global pandemic she uh, was just you know I would have really really struggled without her and without that emotional support um, and I guess then the rest of the pregnancy I was really focused on not getting attached to Florence, having had two babies myself, you know, I knew what pregnancy felt like and how you just growing this little human, you're so attached to them. So I um, was very focused on the physicality of the pregnancy. Um, and yeah, that was a very different experience for me. And, and it's only in reflection that I realized how focused I was on the physical side of it rather than the emotional side of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess as far as pregnancies go, it went pretty smoothly. Um, one of the complications I had actually was that when you do the ethics board in New Zealand, it's recommended that you're under obstetric care. Um, but where I live, there is no private obstetricians. So I actually couldn't really get any obstetric care. And there was a couple of things that arose in the pregnancy that I was referred to the hospital for, but they kept declining my referral and I sort of knew inside that I needed to, to see an obstetrician I needed to talk to them about the process and have a bit of a plan in place but it took a long time for me to actually be able to get a referral to see somebody um, and then when I did get into the hospital system it was great because I ma made a lovely connection with a lovely obstetrician who um, on the second day of my labour turned up on the ward and it was you know, so wonderful to see her so um I that's one of my reflections about surrogacy is that I, I certainly wouldn't do it again without being under an obstetrician and having a bit of a relationship with an obstetrician. And I understand you had bub a little bit earlier than expected. How did that go? Yes, <laughs> yeah, quite a bit earlier. And um, I had a, have a wonderful um, midwife who was uh, very, very involved in the whole thing. And I rang her at 36 weeks and told her my waters had broken and uh, her reaction was, wasn't that um, polite or enthusiastic <laughs> she was a bit shocked mm. so I um, ended up going into the hospital then at 36 weeks and um, my waters had broken with my other two children quite early but I'd gone into labor within sort of 12 to 24 hours of them breaking so I was sort of waiting then and anticipating that I'd go into labor and uh, we all stayed at home and we had to take away and we were kind of waiting to see what would happen and then nothing happened and then we went into the hospital, which is a 45-minute drive from our home, and uh, we all sat there looking at each other, waiting for labour, and nothing was happening. So 
I sent them all home and stayed in the hospital myself um, for that night and still there was no signs of labour and they even started to question whether my wood was even broken. Um, and then the next day they um, broke again, so there was break in the hospital, but um, I was then, you know, then it became a real waiting game because all of a sudden we were four weeks ahead of schedule and um, we knew that the baby had to be delivered within the next week and uh, or if there was a chance that I if I got a temperature or anything um Florence would have been in trouble or I would have been in trouble so I had to stay luckily enough my in-laws live just close to the hospital so I was able to stay in their house and I was allowed and um, be there and come in and out of the hospital as an outpatient and um, to be checked every day and just make sure that I was fine they were just trying to get me to that 37 week point before they induced me wow um, yeah, it was, that was a very um, head game time, you know, to, was like preparing for a marathon or something. Yeah, um, and again, just having that counselling support was really, really important to me at that point as well. Tell me about the birth then. What was that like having your sister and her partner there? Um, yeah, so I tried my hardest to prepare them for what labour is like. I always feel like you can't explain to someone who hasn't been there what it's really like but we did our very best and um, my first birth with my son was what I considered quite traumatic so I had told them all the ins and outs of that and they knew what it could be like as much as possible and then my midwife was giving them really good um, antenatal classes to prepare them too. So um, we had planned to have a birth photographer and actually that was on advice from listening to your podcast um, and that was a great um, thing to have now and be able to reflect on. And for all of us, I think it's been a great thing to be able to reflect on those photos and actually even a little video. But um, the birth was really long. I was um, in on the Wednesday morning, bright and early for um, to be induced. And um, I, they just spent all day inducing me and I was contracting all day, but I never went into a proper labour. And that was pretty challenging because we were all, you know, in the hospital waiting and waiting to see if something was going to happen. Obviously, my husband was really kind of anxious about everything. And Amy and Reggie were very anxious about it all and just kind of went on and on all day. And then they um, decided that they'd give me four hours off and I could have a break. And then they'd try a different type of induction. Um, but my midwife really advocated for me and they ended up letting me go and sleep for the night and then come down and start the second induction the next day. And so I started the second induction and that went on and on <laughs> um, until about um, three o'clock the next day. And I was in what I would have considered um, labor. Um, but I was even kind of getting to that pushing stage, but nothing was happening. Um, really, I was only a few centimetres dilated, um, which was just devastating to everybody. Um, this has just been going on for so long. And then there was a call for um, uh, an emergency C-section. And as we were preparing for the emergency C-section, um, the Florence's heart rate dropped. And so then it would became a really serious um emergency um, but luckily by the time we were in in there and they were doing the heartbeat check again she was fine so um, it was uh, an unusual situation I guess we were really lucky in terms of COVID that we were at level 
one in New Zealand, so we were all allowed to be in the hospital. And then also in New Zealand, um, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but in, certainly in Ireland it's not. In New Zealand you can have as many people as you want there and nobody bats an eyelid. Um, so it was fine to have my husband and Amy and Reggie and my midwife and a birth photographer and everything in the room that was just sort of accepted. Um, except for we went into the C-section and um, was only allowed to be my midwife and Amy who joined me. So um, poor Reggie was trying to peer in the cracks of the door to see um, how we were going. <laughs> and the two boys were outside supporting each other. Um, so yeah, then it was a pretty straightforward C-section. And, and to be honest, I was so relieved um, to be having a C-section. I guess I had kind of thought at some stages during the pregnancy that maybe a C-section would have been a an option because I was quite dreading the birth and I thought that a c-section is more of like a clinical handover of a baby as opposed to the emotions that you go through in labor and so yeah it was more of a relief to me than anything to go into the um, operating theater and I have heard that from some surrogates that uh, I guess for every surrogate there is there's a different opinion on how the birth might go and what their preference is but there are some mm. surrogates that will say having an induction date or a c-section makes it a little, a little bit more easier to manage in terms of planning and having everyone there and a c-section yeah. can also perhaps be their preference if they're looking to make it a, a different experience from um, their own births for example yeah yeah and I think just um, it's really hard you know, if I'm thinking of the science of birth, you know, it's really hard to get that oxytocin up and the hormones when you're not, when you're trying not to attach to the baby you're delivering. Um, so I think that was a big mental block for me was that I was really trying hard not to attach to this baby, but also trying to deliver the baby. And um, that really played with my mind. Mm, I imagine. So what's it been like in those, in the fourth trimester, I guess, um, Reggie and Amy have been there for a while. How long were they able to stay post-birth? Um, we were really fortunate in the hospital. I mean, they just, they haven't had a circuit in the hospital that I birthed in a long, long time. So um, we were quite a novelty, which I guess was good in a way because they just kind of went out of their way to make sure that we were really well cared for. And I was never put in a room with another baby, which was wonderful. I had my own room. Um, and there was a lot of respect for the fact that I was recovering differently from the rest of the ladies in the hospital. Um, and then for Amy and Reggie, they had a room just uh, two doors down from me. They were given for them and Florence. Um, so we all ended up staying. I had a couple of little complications after the birth and ended up being in hospital for four nights. And they were in as well because Florence was a little bit jaundiced. So we were all in there together, but in our separate rooms. And that was really nice. Um, and um, then with the fourth trimester, I, Amy was amazing. She induced her own lactation. So that was a huge journey for her. And she started that at about, you know, um, 30 weeks or so. She started pumping. So by the time Florence was born, she had enough milk pretty much to feed her and, and um, supplement with a little bit of um, formula. So I made a decision then that I would um, take meds to dry up my milk. And um, I was really pleased I did that because I definitely think that helped control my hormones quite a bit. Um, and I, my, milk did, my milk did come in, but it was, it was sort of like day five or six when my milk came in. And then I was able to use some of those old fashioned techniques of um, wrapping and using ice packs to stop it. And it just went away. So 
myself and my and my husband were always kind of concerned about what the fourth trimester would hold for me but it actually turned out to be really good and i think i was just so relieved that it, um, the pregnancy was over and that it had all been safe that i was actually able to start really enjoying the process up until then i think i was kind of in a survival mode and um trying to just get through it and you know seeing each step taking each step one at a time but um then certainly after the pregnancy i just relaxed and i was able to enjoy how happy they were with their baby and them being parents um, yeah, I guess um, one of the things I kind of realized afterwards was that when you're pregnant with someone else's baby, it's like driving around in a motorway the whole time with someone else's child in your car. You know, you <laughs> have this uh, responsibility that I, d I didn't know was weighing on me until after I gave birth. Yeah, and I think a lot of surrogates would agree with you. You feel like you've got very, very precious cargo and you want to take extra special care of it because, yeah, that's a weight of responsibility on your shoulders. Yeah, definitely. Do you recommend doing the fourth trimester so close to the intended parents then where you could have like pretty much immediate access to have a cuddle with the bub? Um, yes, yeah, that was definitely a, a great to be able to have them there. But for me, actually, it was that my children were able to see her um, so that they could understand what was going on. Um, when I was early days pregnant, Amy bought my kids um, some lovely books on surrogacy. You know, my, we know we've got a little kangaroo and she's carrying someone else's baby in her pouch and um, they were able to really relate to that. So they are actually quite confused now about, um, I guess, sex education. And they will often ask me when they see someone who's pregnant who they're going to give their baby to. <laughs> so it's um, having them close at that end stage was really important for my kids definitely um so that the kids could see baby florence and they could bond with her and now they're back in ireland they um like to ring her all the time and they like to see videos of her and understand where she is and um they know that she's a special cousin uh, yeah mm. so tell me about amy and reggie getting out of new zealand and back home um how old was florence when they left um florence was about six weeks when they left um, they were pretty desperate to get back to Ireland because it had been six months and uh, they just needed to get back to their own lives at that point. Um, we, it was complicated. There was other things that we could have done um, to legally before they left, but with the pressure on the courts and stuff here, it was just more sensible to send them home with um, documents that said that they were, that Blake and I gave them permission to carry what is essentially our child back to Ireland and care for it so our lawyer in Auckland did all that paperwork for us and um, I mean even things like they tried to get a DNA test done in time to take it with them on a the flight but because of COVID it didn't get out of New Zealand and back mm -hmm. in time so it was just things all the way that complicated the matter um, and then dropping them off at the airport was a bit like sending them off to a war zone <laughs> you know no everyone's in masks and nobody's allowed and um, into the terminal and stuff so it was a pretty hard goodbye from the car park but it was also a lovely relief to see them leaving as a family and know that they were going back to their own life and the way it should be for them um so does that mean that florence would have a new zealand passport and that she's arrived in ireland on the new zealand passport she has a new zealand passport but because i'm irish she's also entitled to an irish passport okay and um, that was another thing that was complicated by COVID was that ideally she would have flown into Ireland with 
on her Irish passport, but because of COVID, the delays with passports were so long that we just had to send her back on her New Zealand one because it had arrived before the Irish one. Mm. Yeah, there was all those kind of things we needed to cover about if they got stopped at the border, how they would explain the situation. But mm. the other thing about New Zealand is that when you register the birth of a baby here, you can choose whatever surname you want for them. So we were able to, although Florence is mine, a baby um, legally, she has their surname. And that just sort of makes all those kind of little steps a little bit easier for them. Yes, of course. So what's it been like for you since they left then? Um, it's been lovely. Like it's been lovely to see um, how much this has meant to the extended family and to see them all kind of come back together. They had the most, because um, everyone's social distancing in Ireland, Amy was, you know, was she'd always dreamed about coming back to Dublin with this baby and we didn't know if that happened. But um, all her neighbours and friends made a really big effort. Um, they had um, put signs outside her door and balloons and there was friends social distancing on the street and their masks oh. there to see her. And that was all really special for them, you know, and I think it was sort of like a, a good news story among all, amongst all the rest of it going on at the moment. So, yeah, it was That's lovely quite for lovely. them. Yeah. And how yeah. have you adjusted to life? I guess it's not just adjusting to life post-birth, but adjusting to not having them so close by. Um, I definitely really miss them. And I, and uh, like not knowing when I'm going to see my family in general now is quite hard. Uh, I don't know if it'll be a year or two years before I'm actually able to go back to Ireland or they're able to come here. So um, I'm very grateful for um, WhatsApp and all those kind of uh, ways of communicating in contact, being in contact with them. Mm. Yeah. So normally I would ask somebody to give some tips for other surrogates or intended parents who are listening. I feel like um, in your situation, it's how do you prepare anyone from cross-border cross surrogacy during a pandemic where the intended parents end up in your house for six months? I mean, that's, wow, that's quite unique. Having said that, there are a number of intended parents that are having to travel cross-border for surrogacy. Have you got any tips for anyone that's looking at a birth in the next six months in another country or across a state? Um, I guess the biggest reflection I have from the journey is that I had to really look after my own mental health. Um, I, having a counsellor who was just mine, who knew the situation and understood surrogacy um, was really, really important. Um, I was able to touch base with her and I was able to discuss all those things. You know, we had backup plans for what would happen if Amy and Reggie did go back to Ireland and then with COVID I went into labour and we had plans for everything. And then I was also just able to moan at her about the day-to-day -day things. So that would be one of my biggest tips is just to have a support network um, and, you know, some contingency plans in place. Um, I also, the family support for us was such a huge part of it. Um, my mum would have loved to be able to come out and support both of us. Um, but obviously she was stuck in um, Ireland, but my mother-in-law was a huge, huge help to us in those times where I was trying to manage my own kids and I was recovering from a c-section and I was dealing with the post-surgacy side of things so and um, just making sure that you have as much support in place and people know what you're going through I think is really important. I think that's really great advice thank you for joining me Katie it's been really amazing to listen and I do think it will be a good resource for lots of people that are dealing with
surrogacy during a pandemic, but also for those Australians and New Zealanders who are having the cross-border arrangement between them. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you are looking for more information, you can find it on the blog. Listen to more podcast episodes at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at sarah at sarahjefford.com.